0: Let's just bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and powerful. And Lord, this morning as we study these books, we look at them as an overview. Father, we just pray you help us to understand, Lord, the intent with which they were written. Lord, help us to understand, Father, what the Lord was intended to be communicated to the saints. And Father, for us this morning... Lord, the messages here are equally applicable as they were when these books were written. And so, Father, we just pray that you give us open hearts and, Lord, minds that are just in tune with you. Lord, help us to be, Lord, not uh, wandering in our thoughts, but to focus on on that which you have for us this morning. Father, I pray that you take my weak and feeble effort, Lord, my human words. And, Father, that you would just work through me this morning. And that, Father, you just give us all, Lord, a greater understanding of your plan, of your purpose. Lord, of how you want us to be. Uh, Lord, challenge us, we pray, as we study your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we carry on in our journey through the Bible this year, uh, we're going to conclude looking at the pastoral epistles. We started last week, we looked in 1st uh, uh, and 2nd Timothy, uh, the first two of the four pastoral epistles we have. So we're going to just conclude and look at Titus and Philemon, um, and then for the majority of this morning we're going to move into what's referred to as the Hebrew Christian epistles, which will begin for us this morning with uh, the book of Hebrews. Now in the New Testament we have um, letters that are sent to seven different churches. Now it's interesting because Jesus in the book of Revelation will write to seven churches. And uh, interestingly enough they seem to map these churches. Uh, We'll talk about that when we get to Revelation. Um, Some of these letters, uh, the ones certainly written by Paul, three of them were written um, from prison. Uh, that's Ephesus, Philippians, and Colossians. We've gone through those already. Um, but then we move on to, as I say, the pastoral epistles. So this morning, as I say, Titus Philemon, um, but Timothy also is in this bracket. And then we've got eight uh, that are classed under the Hebrew Christian epistles. So typically written to the Jews, uh, as opposed to these other ones typically written by Paul here to Gentiles. Um, starting with the book of Hebrews, but James, First and Second Peter, First, Second, and third John, and then finally Jude. Uh, again so just from a a um classification point of view, uh, as I say, most commentators refer to these as the Hebrew Christian epistles. And so we'll get on to to looking at those in a moment. But let's start by concluding the uh, pastoral epistles. Paul has such a pastoral heart. He cares so much about the churches he planted, about the individuals he left in charge. And we saw so much of that coming through last time as we were looking at um, the letters he wrote to Timothy, as Paul said, my own son in the faith, and kind of adopted Timothy uh, in that sense as his son to train him up um, to get him ready for carrying on this work of ministry. Well, Titus was very similar. Titus was, uh, from what we understand, converted through Paul's teaching and ministry. Um, We're not given a formal introduction to Titus. We don't know quite where he comes onto the scene, um, but he does become one of Paul's most trusted companions. Philemon, uh, he was a member of the church at Colossus and was a close friend of Paul. And uh, as the letters that Paul had written were taken back, Um, So um, the letter to the church at uh, Colossus was taken back, and so was this letter to Philemon. Uh, And we'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, As regards the time of writing, well, we looked at this briefly last time. Philemon seems to be the first one written, uh, and again, that will be our our focus in a while. Um, Timothy, seemingly second, around about 64 AD. Titus, uh, 65 AD. And then finally, Second Timothy, around about 68 AD. But uh, Philemon and Titus, again, where we are this morning. So we'll start, as it goes in Scripture, uh, with Titus. Well... <clears throat> This is, uh, as I said, one of uh, Paul's most trusted uh, companions, co-workers and so on. And it's interesting as we understand that um, Titus accompanied Paul and Barnabas uh, on a very difficult visit to the Jerusalem Council. That's recorded in Galatians chapter 2. Um, and it seems to be right by their side through some of the, the difficult moments of ministry and missions and so on. He was sent by Paul, as kind of like a troubleshooter in a sense, on a, a diplomatic mission to Corinth. Um, he took what... Seem to be regarded by scholars as a letter that has been missed or misplaced. We don't have a record of it anymore, but referred to as the severely worded letter. Um, really tackling their unruliness and so on. Um, he's given instructions to enforce these things at Corinth and Paul asked him to report back what was going on. Well, eventually he meets Paul in Macedonia and much to Paul's delight, much had been accomplished. Titus had been very faithful in the work assigned to him and uh, there had been a real positive change in things at Corinth. And we see those, we talked about that as we were studying uh, the letters to the Corinthians. Paul then leaves him in Crete to set things in order there as well, puts him in this position of authority. Now, the outline of uh, this book, only uh, just a few chapters we have, but just we have an introduction, the first four verses, but then really it's addressed to the elders in the congregation in the first chapter. Then from verse 10, we start to look at the error in congregation, uh, exercise in the congregation. Exaltation in the congregation and then finding the conclusion. That's taken from the Believer's Bible commentary by William MacDonald. And there's a number of breakdowns, but that's a fairly helpful breakdown of the kind of, um, the, the subjects that are addressed in this letter. It's very much uh, a letter that deals with church life, how we should do church and we'll look at those things in a moment the first thing though, let's uh, pick, it, pick up verse 5 of chapter 1 and it just says this, Paul speaking to, to Titus, for this cause left thee in Crete that thou should set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee so one of Titus's roles was to just get things sorted out to set some sort of structure and, and have kind of things done orderly uh, and that's one of the things that Paul had tasked to do there, in chapter two, uh, picking up uh, there at the beginning of uh, it says, "Speak though the things which become sound doctrine; that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity." Goes obviously that's love, uh, in patience. So this instruction is about how we should do things when we are at church together. Now, firstly, as it's important to note there, and we majored a bit on this last time in uh, looking at Timothy this instruction to speak the things which become sound doctrine. And we talked about how important doctrine is um, for a church, for a body of believers. It is that which has been established by Jesus. Again, things that were um, revealed by Jesus, they're taught in the book of Acts and expounded on uh, in the epistles and so on. That becomes church doctrine. It's not something that anybody can just decide, oh, well, this is going to be the doctrine of the church. Now sadly, many in the church today think they can do that. They think they can rewrite the rules. But the moment you rewrite the rules, it's become something other than what it was. It moves away from being historical Christianity to being some sort of perversion. And sadly, we see much of that within the so-called church today. But again, Paul, very, very keen to major on this doctrine. But as we saw last time, every time we see doctrine, we see love alongside it. Because we are to speak the truth in love. Uh, and that's so important the truth is absolutely vital we mustn't deviate from it but again we must do all things in that attitude of love and so on Um instruction here to the aged men so if this morning you are here and you consider yourself in that bracket I'm not going to point or name names I'll let you make that decision your wives will probably help you make that decision but um, the aged men be sober and that's not just talking about being free from alcohol that's not what it's saying of course that's implied but it's sober in the way you think grave temperate Any control of your life in every area. Sound in faith, in love, in impatience. That's the way we're told the aged men should be. But then we give an instruction to the aged woman. And again, I'll let you make that uh, that call yourselves. uh, The aged women likewise, that they be in behaviour as becomes holiness. It's easier to be an example. It says, not false accusers. And of course, don't we see so much damage done within the church by those that would love to gossip? Not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. that They may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. You see, the Bible recognizes the benefit of experience and, of course, the benefit of godly experience. And for the older ladies amongst us, it is your responsibility To be an example to the younger ladies. And younger ladies, it's your responsibility to respect and listen to the older ladies. That we grow together. That we learn from each other. To be discreet, chaste, keep us at home. Good, obedient to their own husbands. That the word of God be not blasphemed. Now again, we need to qualify because we live in a culture where... And these things often get so twisted. That phrase, obedient to their own husbands. You know, the Bible makes it very clear how a godly husband should be. And there is no problem obeying a godly husband. No wife would have any issue obeying a godly husband. Of course, if you have an ungodly husband, then it's a very difficult and different situation. But the Bible's speaking of the way that things should be. And wives, you should obey your husbands. But husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church. You know, God has got this all so beautifully orchestrated that if we follow His lead, then our homes and our our lives will be blessed and be so much better. But then we give instructions to the young men. Likewise, exhort to be sober minded. Now, again, how applicable uh, in a world that's just so full of uh, um, young people going off on tangents, doing this, doing that. And of course, you know, young people. Yeah, you know, we, we have all the answers. I didn't notice we there, I kind of put myself in the brain. You know, but as you grow up you realise you don't actually have all the answers. And you have to rely on other people. You know, but young people sometimes become very impetuous, and particularly young men. You know, but we're told that we should be sober minded in all things, showing yourself as a pattern of good works. Well now that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not just saying we should live a godly life and so on, but we should show a pattern of good works. We should be active we should be doing things for god in doctrine in doctrine showing uncorruptness gravity sincerity sound speech that cannot be condemned well if just we could just get that one sorted because so many times people within the church you know or whatever situation again this is specifically addressed to the young man how often though do people say things that are just so silly so casual without really thinking about it And, you know, we live in a world that we can add something and not to Scripture, Scripture's complete. But in terms of our understanding of this, you know, because we have things like Facebook and Twitter today. And how many people say stupid things that actually, you know, somebody else will take in a completely the wrong way, or even maybe the way it was intended and it should never have been written. You know, we should think about what we do. Again, sound speech that cannot be condemned. We're told we shouldn't even give appearance to evil. Again, the he that is a contrary part, so the people that would love to look at us as Christians and criticise us, may be ashamed. Having no evil thing to say of you. You know, they will say evil things of you if you give them opportunity, but we're told very clearly that we should be very, very sober-minded. Think about what we're doing. And again, our sound speech, the things that we say, but also the things that nowadays, the things that we write in uh, social media and so on, um, that becomes a big part of this. And I love this. In uh, chapter 2, we read 4. Okay, He kind of really starts to tie all these things together. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Some... I don't like this verse because clearly we have that line at the bottom there, speaking of Jesus as our great God and Saviour. Jesus is the great God. Jesus is the Saviour. But the whole point of the way we should live and the why we should live really is summed up in verse 13, because we should be looking for the blessed hope. What is our blessed hope? It's that upward calling. It's that time when the Lord will come back and will call us to be with him, where we will meet the Lord in the air and forever we shall be with the Lord. As Jesus said to the disciples, John 14, that he's gone to prepare a place for us and he'll come again to receive us and take us to that place. And that's why we should be living godly lives because we have so much ahead of us, so much to look forward to. Well, moving on to Philemon. Philemon is a very interesting book, just a very kind of short little kind of one-chapter book. I mean, Paul here intercedes for this runaway slave by the name of Onesimus, who apparently had robbed his master and headed off to Rome, his master being Philemon. And instead of finding refuge while he was in Rome, he comes into contact with Paul and this slave becomes converted, he becomes a believer. And so once he was worthless, but now he becomes profitable. And that's what his name means, Onesimus means in the Greek, profitable. So although Paul would have liked to have kept him, because now he was a believer, he becomes profitable to Paul, Paul recognises that he has a responsibility to send him back to his master, back in Colossus, which is exactly what Paul then does. Well, since he left as a pagan, he's now returning as a Christian, Paul is writing this letter to ask Philemon to receive him back, not as a slave that's run away, but as a brother in Christ. Now, it can be assumed that Philemon did this um, because, um, obviously, Paul resp- uh, responds to this appeal. It would uh, um, probably been unlikely this letter would have circulated later uh, if Philemon had, for any reason, rejected Paul's request. So there's a good reason to believe that Philemon did indeed receive him as a brother. Now, again, this all occurs about the time that Paul received the news from Ephrasus um, that the threat um, to the faith in Colossus, now we talked about that when we were going through the book of Colossians, uh, and that gives rise to the, official, the epistle to the Colossians, and which is why these letters both go back from Rome at the same time. <clears throat> now, Paul entrusted um, Tychius, uh, his friend, to deliver these letters, and he gives him the responsibility not only to uh, take the letter, but to protect Onesimus, from arrest by the slave catchers on the return journey. See, Elizabeth was actually committed a crime and he was wanted by the authorities for doing this. And only the, the only person that could release him from that crime was his owner. And the task of obviously delivering this letter, not only to uh, the Laodiceans, which probably refers to the letter to the Ephesians that were right next to each other, and also the Colossians. So um, Tychus has this role. And the third thing is to give this letter to Philemon. So he's delivering at least three letters uh, seemingly, and again to protect Onesimus on this journey back, and uh, the letter does appear uh, to stop short of actually asking Philemon to give Onesimus his freedom, but clearly that is implied in the letter. Now, just a, a quick comment about slavery at that time. It suggested that there were some sixty million slaves in the Roman Empire. Uh, again, there were men, women, all traded for reward. Apparently, the average slave sold for 500 denarii. Um, one denarii was a day's wage for a common laborer. Okay, so you're looking at kind of best part of a, a year and a half's kind of salary um, here for a slave. So these were no um, cheap things that could just be dismissed. The, the value of a slave is quite significant. Um, An educated slave, on the other hand, and skilled slaves, could be sold for as much as 50,000 denarii. So you're looking at a really valuable asset from the position of a slave owner if they'd actually gone and bought a slave. Now a master had the right and they could free a slave or a slave could buy his freedom if he could raise the money to do so. Well, if a slave ran away, the master would register the name and the description with the officials, and the slave would be on, the, as I said earlier, the most wanted list. Uh, and the authorities would be looking out for this individual to bring them to justice. Um, but the law did permit a master also to execute a rebellious slave. So all of these things kind of are in the background of what's going on here. And so some masters were cruel, many of them were reasonable and humane on the other side as well so um, a slave uh, was an expensive and useful piece of property uh, and it would obviously cost the owner to lose them <clears throat> so Philemon will be facing a dilemma if he forgives Onesimus he's got an issue because what are all the other masters going to think and what would the slaves think as well I mean, we're not told if he had any other slaves what kind of issue or, or difficulties would that cause if he punished him on the other hand What about his own testimony as a believer, to do this to a fellow believer? Now, this is the same challenge that you and I face. It's the challenge of being in the world, but not of it. You see, we live our lives in the world, and we're forced to make decisions every day. And it's that, on one hand, there's that, you know, what the world would expect, and then there's the what God would expect challenge. Now, of course, we should always go with the what God would expect But it is hard, and I'm not going to stand here and pretend it's an easy thing to do. On a daily basis in my work situation, I'm confronted time and time again with these kind of things. that You have to make that decision to try and live your life in a godly way. But sometimes that means going against the natural way of doing things and risk what others might say or the repercussions accordingly. And that's exactly the situation that Philemon's in here. Let's just look at a portion of this, and then we'll just conclude. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ, this is Paul speaking to Philemon, to command you what is fitting, to saying, although I could do this, yet for love's sakes I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So this is a, a letter to a friend, saying, look, I could command you to do this because of who I am, I'm Paul, you know who I am, but as a friend, I'm asking I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but is now profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart. Paul expressing the love that he's developed for this this young man, this, this slave. Whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel, but without your consent I wanted to do nothing." that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. He's saying, I really wanted an to stay, and probably you'd have allowed that, but I need your permission. So he's sending him back, so that anything that happens from here on is with Philemon's consent. And he says, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. You see... You know, Paul's saying he's left, he's gone away but if he comes back, not only can he come back and serve you again in his former capacity but even better than that because he's now a believer you've got him forever, you've got each other forever a beloved brother especially to me but now much more to you both in the flesh um, and in the Lord if then you count me as a partner receive him as you would me but if he has wronged you or owes anything put that on my account in great, Incredible statement of Paul there. Basically, Paul's saying, look, if there's anything outstanding, any bill that needs to be paid, I'll pay it. I'm happy to cover all the costs that this young man goes free. Now this led Martin Luther to make the comment that we are all Onesimuses. Onesimuses. Because we are all in that position. You see, this is a beautiful picture of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Of course, this is a real historical situation and so on, but this is a, an account of what has been done for us. You see, it's Christ who says, on our behalf, charge that to my account, receive them as you would me. You see, we were guilty and effectively deserved death. But Jesus steps in and not only protects us, but Jesus in. Pays the debt and allows us to go free it's an incredible picture and it's just this short little book it's a beautiful book uh, and well worthy of study and I hope this morning that I just prompt you to to go away and to study these things a little bit more so that brings us to the end of these kind of pastoral epistles so let's look now at the beginning of the Hebrew Christian epistles and start of course with the book of Hebrews now we've been studying this uh, Bible study for the last uh, couple of months or so now it's an incredible book. Uh, it's a book that many of us will probably love. There's lots of great verses in here, lots of verses that we can uh, commit to memory and probably many of us already have. Um, but most Bible scholars tend to avoid this book from a teaching point of view if they can because of chapter 6 and chapter 10. And if anybody's read it, you'll know what I mean because there are some difficulties here that are really quite perplexing. In chapter 6, there's a portion, and we'll, we'll touch on it as we get there, that there's at least 16 different explanations as to what it means. Now I'll give you what I think this morning from the context as we look through. Um, but this really is an incredible book. I actually think, having studied this now um, for this overview, that this is probably the most applicable book to the church today out of all of the books of the New Testament. And as we go through, hopefully you'll start to see why. But... You see, we live in a time, very much like it was when this book was written, where there were those that had come out of a religious system. And the temptation is to get sucked back in. And we've got many people today in many churches, and I've been asked this question probably more than any other. When I've spoken and done other things elsewhere, where people have come to me and they've said, I go to a church that doesn't preach the word of God, what should I do? That one question I think I've been asked more times than any other single question. Well, up until now I've given the benefit of my experience and the answer that I felt was right, um, which I still hold to, but there I believe is now a biblical basis to answer that question. And that's what I think the book of Hebrews, uh, the epistle to the Hebrews gives us. So, well the first thing to mention of course and to state that it is a great theological treatise, one of two, alongside the book of Romans in the New Testament. Israel, we see from this book, is not a subset of the nations, but intentionally God has allowed Israel to become a contrast and a focus. So rather than just having all the nations and Israel is just one of them or part of, Israel is on its own, totally unique from any other nation on the earth, designed to be so by God. And Israel stands as a contrast, specifically that the rest of the world would learn lessons God wants us to to learn from these things. The book, the epistle to the Hebrews, stands also, if you like, as the Leviticus of the New Testament. We see that Christ supersedes and fulfills the Aaronic priesthood, the the priesthood under Aaron. Interestingly, the temple clearly was still standing at the time of writing. We're not given a time of writing, we don't know. Clearly it was probably somewhere um, in the 50s or 60s. Um, uh, AD, but certainly before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. The temple was still standing, the Jewish religion was still uh, going very strong in Jerusalem at this time. Now, the dilemma that really is being addressed here. You see, the Jews had a divinely appointed religion. They had divinely appointed priests officiating in a divinely appointed temple, accomplishing a divinely ordered service, ennobled through the ages. You see, the Jews only carrying out that which had been given to them by God. Their religion was a religion that had come directly from God. Now, of course, they'd added to it, and they'd written bits in, and they'd come up with their own uh, additional laws and so on. But the root of their religion had come directly from God himself. So the question, of course, is how could now believing priests, these are Jews that have become Christians. And, of course, bear in mind that the early church was Jewish. The early church started off as Jews. It was only when we get to Acts chapter 10 onwards that the gospel really starts to go out to the Gentiles. But the early church was Jewish. So how could these priests particularly, that have become Christians and Pharisees, remain zealous of the law? Because it was the Jewish religious world that had crucified Jesus and that were repudiating him. So they have a real issue because on one hand there's that call to remain true to their religion and yet they're aware that their religion was the root of that which had caused Jesus to be put to death. On top of that, the church in Jerusalem had been under persecution. Stephen had already been stoned, so the Apostle James had been killed, and others. And then the churches in Galatia, again, had been very victimized and targeted by the religious Jews. And again, being tempted to resort to that which had previously been their way of life, would have been a very, very strong challenge for them. You see, apostasy was kind of like at the door to avoid persecution. I mean, we see this, don't we? How easy would it be if persecution really came for us to go back into the established church? You see, the established church is fine with homosexuality. It's fine with all sorts of things that the Bible actually says are not according to God's rule and God's law. And the established church won't come under persecution. But the true church, that which is based upon the Bible, will come under persecution more and more and more, as Gerald was sharing earlier. The true church is fine with evolution. The Church of England apologized to Darwin. By the way, did you know that Darwin is now a creationist? You know all these things that the the established church has accepted and taken on, and you know you won't be persecuted for those things, but you'll be persecuted for standing on the word of God, and that's exactly the situation that these Jews were in at this time. And so the temptation was to just kind of come on back under the banner, the umbrella of Judaism, because it makes life a lot easier. And so that was one of the issues. Now, the objectives we see then is to combat this possible apostasy. And that's one of the author's objectives in writing to the Hebrews. Also, to encourage them to press on to spiritual maturity. And we'll see that amplified. And also, to comfort them in their persecutions. They were going through these real, genuine trials and difficulties. The author also Demonstrates the superiority of the Messiah, of Jesus, over the three pillars, if you like, of Judaism, that being the angels, the revered angels, over Moses, over the Levitical priesthood. And Jesus is presented, as we see, as being greater than all of these. Another thing we see is that the author will deviate from the arguments he's presenting to include five warnings. And that's what I want to really focus on this morning because I think it gives us a real insight uh, into what was going on then but how applicable this is for us today. Now, we do find that we've got kind of trilogy in the new testament based around habakkuk 2 verse 4 which is the just shall live by faith that verse became the the capstone if you like of the reformation of the verse that really um triggered martin luther to carry on and to to do what he did and it really sparked this uh, reformation in europe and romans is the verse we all the this, each three of these books romans galatians and hebrews all quote this scripture habakkuk 2 4 but romans addresses the just who are the just Well, the book of Romans really deals with that question. The book of Galatians addresses the how shall we live? And then Hebrews really hammers this issue that it's by faith. And so we have almost an intentional trilogy and so on. Now, mentioned already the author. We don't know who the author is. And in one sense we could say it doesn't matter. And probably it doesn't matter. It's been concealed from us. And yet I would also add from Proverbs 25 two: it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honour of kings is to search out a matter. So it might be unimportant, but it might be. We don't know. Um, we're not, this book is not authored. We don't have a signature on it. But there may be a very compelling reason for that. I personally do believe that Paul was the author, and if you want to know why, come and have a chat to me. But it doesn't really make any difference to our understanding of the, the book itself. So um, i just share that with you. There's lots of interesting debates that are around this and there's, nobody's going to be able to settle the debate. Um, and again, really, it doesn't make any significant difference to our understanding. So let's move on and look at the subject matter in hand. So can we break it down? Read the first seven chapters, just deal with Jesus, who's the new and better deliverer. Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is the God-man. But then we have our first warning, and we'll look at that in a moment. But then we find that Jesus is an apostle better than Moses, we then have our second warning. And then a leader better than Joshua, and a priest better than Aaron, and then comes our third warning. And then finally, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This strange character that appears way back in Genesis, a priesthood that existed way before the Aaronic priesthood, way before the time of the Exodus and the law and the setting up of the priesthood for Israel, there was another priest who is referenced in Scripture. A very interesting character. But Jesus' priesthood is of the same order we see. But then we see the next group of chapters from chapter 8 through chapter 10. Really, Calvary represents a new and a better covenant than that which had gone before. It's a better sanctuary. It's better sacrifice. All of these things are laid out for us. And then the final section from chapter 10, verse 18, through to the end of the book, chapter 13. Really, we see some practical applications. Another warning is given. The Hall of Faith, as is often referred to in Hebrews chapter 11. And then, in the last couple of chapters, this exhortation to endure, and then finally, the book closes with the fifth and final warning. So, what are the warnings? Well, we find the first warning in chapter two is against drifting, and we'll talk about these as we go through in a moment. Second one, disobedience in chapter three, verse seven to chapter four, thirteen. Chapter uh, uh, the third warning is a failure to mature. That's in chapter five, eleven to chapter six, twenty. And then, willful sin, in chapter 10, verse 26 to 39. And then the fifth one is a warning against indifference, from chapter 5, chapter 12, 25 through to 29. So those we're going to look at in a moment as we kind of go through uh, the book, a a quick overview. So, the important thing really is that a great loss awaits those who fail to persevere. And that will be the the conclusion in a sense that we'll reach in a a moment. There's a loss of reward and honour in Christ's millennial kingdom that is at stake here. So that's what we're going to look at. That's what these warnings uh, are really in regard to. Well, let's just have a quick look at the opening few verses of the book because it really is just an incredible uh, statement, an incredible opening. God, who at sundry times... And in diverse manners, spoken time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I think this took us um, a whole evening at Bible study to go through just these three verses. There is so much here. And again, we could enjoy and unpack these things. I encourage you just to sit down with these things. Just meditate, go over. Um, Meditate doesn't mean empty your mind and sit there and hum. It means to think That's what the biblical meditation is all about, to ruminate, to go over, to chew the cud like a a cow would do, to keep going over and over and to think through these things. Um, But what a statement. It's God who has spoken to us through Jesus. And Jesus is the one who has created all things. And Jesus is the one who has purged our sins and now is sitting down at the right hand of the Father on high. So, this opening... The Son is in the final revealer, the final revelation that God gives to this world. He's the heir of all things. And through the Son, the ages were made. He's the creator of everything. He's the brightness of God's glory, we're told. And he's the image of the Father. He upholds all things by his power. He made purification of sin. And he sat down at the majesty. We've just seen those things. But then we go on, and as the, the chapter, the first chapter continues, we find that the Son is superior to the angels by virtue of his deity, because he's God, but also by virtue of his humanity and by virtue of the salvation that he's provided. All of these things the author unpacks and brings out for us. Now, we then see... Again, his superiority because of his deity, because of the unique position that he has, and loads of references to the Old Testament. You see, the Son was the head, Jesus was the head of the Davidic covenant as well. The angels also worship Jesus the Son, and angels serve him as well. Loads of references to the Old Testament. Um, And the Son is to rule the kingdom that God will give him. Also, the Son is the creator of all things. This is all still in the first chapter. The Son is also enthroned at the right hand of God, as we've seen. Chapter 2, we carry on. And now we get to the first of our warnings. This is really the danger of drifting. You see, we must give earnest heed, is what we're told in the text, to the things which we have heard. You see, just thinking about who it is that has wrought our salvation, That it is the very voice of God, the express image of God, the brightness, and so on. All these things. And the contrast as we go into chapter 2 is, think about who Jesus is. We give earnest heed to those things, lest at any time we should let them slip. A paraphrase really is, we must not get casual with our faith. And then we're given this comment, really, that if there was a judgment on those who failed to follow the law, which was given by angels, we're told in the text, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Another way of saying this is, do you think you can get away with living a nominal Christian life? You know, if the Jews in the wilderness didn't escape by treating lightly the things that were said, do you think that now under a new and better covenant, You can just live however you want and it doesn't matter. If there was accountability then, how much more is there accountability now for the way that you live your life? That's the first warning and you'll see that these build as we go through. Well then in chapter 2 he goes on to talk about the son's superiority by looking at his humanity. The sovereignty over earth uh, was promised to man, not angels, way back in Genesis and God gave man dominion over the earth. But the problem was that man lost it through sin to Satan and obviously his angels. So now the earth is in the power of Satan. We're told that. 2 Corinthians four four and a number of other scriptures make it very clear. But the Messiah, the Son, regained dominion for man. And ultimately when we get to the book of Revelation, we'll see that Jesus will claim back that which he has already won. For now, Satan remains the god of this world, but effectively he's lost the title deed. And Jesus, we'll see in Revelation, claims that back. And the incredible thing is that man will now be associated with Jesus in this rule that he is to establish on this earth. Well, we see also his sovereignty in regard to his salvation. Uh, Again, to manifest the divine grace. A number of Old Testament scriptures are cited here. These will be in the notes for you. Um, To overcome the prince of death. To free the believer from the fear of death. And also to help man. So a number of ways that we see Christ's superiority uh, over the angels, over um, the law, all these things that are listed for us. Or well, chapter three goes on, and we get to see that Jesus is greater than Moses, both in person and in work and in position. At that point is made, and of course for, for the Jews, Moses was such a revered person. But what the author here does is show that Jesus is greater in every regard than Moses. We then have our second warning, and this is the danger of disobedience. Okay, So the first one is drifting away, just to begin casual. But this is disobedience. Israel failed, of course, to enter into the rest at Kadesh Barnea through fear and unbelief. As a result, they spent 40 years wandering. These were God's people. He rescued them from Egypt. But they ended up striving rather than resting. I think this is so significant for us. Because what about us? Are we striving today? Do we find that life is hard? Or have we entered into that rest? You see, the challenge that is given to us here is that we should have entered into that rest. We should not be living a life where we've got our feet up every day, and uh, no there's still work to be done, but it should be a beautiful simplicity about our life in Christ. There shouldn't be all the trials and the the, the difficulties that we bring in because we try and do things ourselves. You see, we try and manage our own lives our own way. Well, wasn't that exactly what Israel were doing? Weren't they looking at the promised land? were they looking at the potential problems? And No, no, we can't do that. We've got to do this. We've got to go our way. We've got to do what we think. For 40 years, they ended up striving because they didn't trust God. And really, a big part of this is trust. If we trust God, then we'll enter into the rest that He's intended for us. You know, and that's where we should be. You know, we should have entered into the rest. God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. The reason, one of the reasons he did that was to give us the pattern of how our lives should be. We've gone past that time of striving. But now in Christ, there should be, again, a beautiful simplicity to our lives if we are waking up every day and trusting Christ for everything. There's a word that comes out in chapter 3, this word partakers. We're made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. So this word partakers in the Greek is metakoi. It's one who shares in a companion, a comrade, a partner, and so on. But notice what we're told. If, well, we don't like those ifs, do we? We're so used to everything being by grace, we don't have to earn it, we don't have to do anything, we just get given it. And now we've got an if. You see, we may partakers of Christ if there's a condition, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now I want to make this very clear this is not talking about salvation. Bear in mind who Paul sorry, forgive me the author, I believe Paul as I said but who the author was writing to. he's writing to believers. So the issue in this book is not one of salvation. What is a partaker? Well, again, the word means to be a, partake, a participant in something. We see it in Second Peter as well. It's partaking of Christ's life. It means not only receiving his life in our spirits, but also living that life in our souls. It's partaking of his life is what leads us to overcoming. How do we play this out? Well, it's Christ's overcoming life that is imparted to us. His love, his wisdom, his power. And we're simply partaking of it. So how does all this work? Well, being a partaker in Christ, which is justification, is another word for this, is not the same thing as being a partaker of Christ. So being a partaker in Christ, again, justification, is not the same as being a partaker of Christ, sanctification. Two separate things. These are believers that are being addressed here, who have not only received Christ's life at their new birth, but are now living his life. You see, if you're saved, you've received Christ's life, you've received that newness of life, but are you actually living it on a day-by-day basis? Do you know the power of his risen life in your life? You see, God's purpose for this exchange life or being a partaker is so that we might produce fruit. And again, fruit is that which is produced by the Spirit of God through us. And so much of the New Testament is given over to this theme. As the fruit of righteousness, you can't produce that fruit by your efforts. However, without a continual co death with Christ, there'll be no fruit. You know, we're told that we should die to ourselves. What does that mean? How do we actually understand that in our own life? How do we play that out? I want you to think these things. Go back to Scripture, study, look, and try and understand this because it's such an important issue that we find throughout, as I say, the New Testament. And it's really being hammered in the Book of Hebrews. John fifteen verses four and five tell us: "It's only if we abide in Him that fruit will result." Hmm. You see, fruit is the result of partaking of Christ's life. James three seventeen says this: "But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle." easy to be entreated full of mercy and good fruits without partiality without hypocrisy that's the kind of life that we should have our lives should be pure if we're abiding in Christ if we are a partaker and it really means that the whole summary of this is that we die to our own life our own way of living that we put God first but our life should then be peaceable, gentle full of mercy good fruits Without hypocrisy, so on. Well, the next section takes us from chapter 4 through to 10. A number of things are addressed here. Um, firstly, that Jesus is greater uh, than Aaron in his role as a priest, as a high priest. Uh, is in a better position because Christ's position, of course, is heavenly rather than Aaron's, which was earthly. Again, Christ's position is divinely appointed. But then we have another warning. And this one is about progressing to maturity. Okay, need to take in more mature material. I mean, this is the idea of going on from, as a baby would, from milk onto solid food. And really, it's being emphasized that a return to Judaism is not an option. You know, for us, we can't go back into religious ritualism or whatever else. That's not the answer to this. Now, this is one of those really challenging portions of scripture. You see, it is saying that we should be going on to perfection. We should not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. And we should be progressing to solid food. And the real danger if we do not, if we don't do this is that we might fall away. Now, what are we saying? You see, we can lose the precious gift of repentance. I'll explain that in just a moment. See, our conscience also can become seared and past feeling. Sin no longer makes us grieve. Look at, just look at this verse, these verses from chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. As I said, there's over 16 different explanations of what this means. When you understand who the recipients of this letter were. These were people who were saved. Okay? So the context here is impossible for those who were once believers and once had understood. And the suggestion is not that you can lose your salvation because this idea of falling away is not falling away from salvation. Because the issue here is highlighted when it says that if, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. That's the key because you can come to a place in your life where you ignore God's voice and you don't allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in you or to challenge you, to change you. And you become so accustomed to your own position, your own way of life, your own reasoning that actually you become hardened to God's voice in that particular area. And it's impossible then to renew you to repentance because you don't feel the grief that once you felt. When we become Christians, when we realize that we've offended our holy God, when we truly repent, there is remorse that's there. But what I believe is being addressed here is a position that any one of us could get into, that we allow ourselves in any particular area of our life to become so hardened to the things of God because we just put it to one side. We don't want to listen to God's voice in that particular area. Maybe he's been asking you to, to let go of something, to give up an attitude or an action, or habit, and you just don't want to listen. Well, then it becomes impossible after a while to renew you to repentance. Because Jesus is not going to go through that process for you of being crucified so that you suddenly are made aware of the the criminal nature of your own sin, and come to that point of, uh, place of, of absolute um, poverty, spiritually before the throne. And so you end up kind of carrying this baggage along that no longer you can weep for, no longer you feel repentance. You see, we're told it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Paul says that in the book of Romans. And we need to understand that repentance is just an incredible gift. You see, what is it that the believers here are going to lose or suffer? It's not salvation. Salvation very clearly is something that is eternal. The issue here is rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, And we cannot escape by applying this to others or making it not seem to us, what some people try and do with these portions. You see, the burden of Hebrews is not the rescuing of sinners from hell, it's the bringing of sons to glory. That's what the purpose of this book is all about. It's not about saving sinners. It's about changing us. It's about bringing us to this place before the throne, the place where God would have us be, bringing sons to glory. You see, the question, of course, can a man lose his salvation? Well, the answer to that is yes, if it depends on him. If it depended on you, you could lose your salvation. But Praise God, it doesn't. It does not depend upon you. Salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ. That's That's it there's a a long age old debate that I'm sure some of you are familiar with Uh, the Armenian position denies that the true child of God is eternally secure they say that you can lose your salvation and they'll try and use verses like this to prove it the Calvinist on the other scale insists that if um, he does not um, persevere in holiness then he was never regenerate in the first place And so these two kind of positions, So the Calvinist suggests that actually once saved you're always saved and that's it. And God has already handpicked those who are going to be saved and really we don't get a choice in the matter. The Armenian says that actually you can kind of flit in and out of salvation. Look, Jesus makes it very clear, he speaks in John's Gospel of giving us eternal life. That one statement alone nails the whole issue. Because if it's given as eternal life it cannot be lost because it wouldn't be eternal if it's not eternal. I think you can see that. You know, if it's eternal life, it's forever. And Jesus also makes the promise, John ten ten, that we are secure not only in his hands, but in the Father's hands. And together, Jesus, the Father, are holding us. It's not about us. It's not about our ability. So salvation is not, again, the issue. Chuck Misler made this comment. He said, after 400 years of doctrinal disputes, with outstanding scholars on both sides of this issue, it appears to be the result of a failure to adequately, adequately distinguish between justification and the possibility of several different inheritances. think there's a lot of insight in that statement. And I think a lot of people misunderstand these portions of scripture because they don't understand that issue. Now we're going to build on those warnings as we go through and you'll see the conclusion in a moment. Just a couple of other things that are to mention. I mentioned already this um, priesthood of Melchizedek. And again, Jesus is of this line. Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. So independent of genealogy, uh, this priest, we're not told of his beginning or end, and in that way, just like Jesus, um, again, all-inclusive. This wasn't just for one nation, the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so Jesus' priesthood is of this type because it's for all people. The Levitical priesthood, could never achieve perfection. is something that the author makes very clear. Another non-Levitical order was also predicted through David, that there would be another way. The Levitical priesthood, of course, was temporary. It was weak. It could not impart strength to fulfil its demands. It couldn't bring perfection. The problem with the Levitical priesthood, as the author to Hebrews makes it very clear, is it cannot deal with the issue of conscience. The Mosaic Covenant was destined to be replaced by a better one anyway. And this is what, from chapter 8, we start to see addressed. See, the new covenant has better promises, has a better priesthood, a better sanctuary, and a better sacrifice. All of these things. Better, should I say. My daughter will tell me off if i better. The limitations of the old temporary sanctuary, which was only a re- restricted, a representative copy, is contrasted with the heavenly actual. You see, the temp- the, the, the sanctuary of which the instructions were given to Moses to make, was to be a copy of that which exists in heaven. So this tent and everything else, that Moses was told to get all the material together, and they were to build it and set it up in the, in, the, in the wilderness, and eventually that became the framework for uh, the temple with some additional instructions that God had given. That was only ever just a copy, a model of what already is in heaven. And so we see this again contrasted. And there was only one man out of one tribe, out of one nation, and one race that could enter. Only on one day of the year, and he couldn't go in without blood. That was the limitation of the Levitical system, of the the Aaronic priesthood and so on. Of course, Christ is so much better than that. For Aaron, it was temporary, it was limited, it was inadequate. You see, it also required repetition. Animal blood was used to cover sins, but they could never remove sins. Only obedience would bring perfection. Of course, nobody could fully obey. But only the Messiah, in contrast, can impart perfection. That new life that is placed within us. Again, the Mosaic sacrifice never intended to be permanent either. And again, there's many contrasts between the old covenant and the new covenant, between the Levitical system and that which Jesus establishes. There were many priests compared to just one. The priest The Levites were standing as they ministered. Jesus is now seen as sitting. His work is completed. For the Levitical priesthood, it was a daily offering, daily sacrifice. For Jesus, it was just one specific day. For the old covenant, for the priesthood as it was, the, the sacrifice was repeated. In Jesus, it was once and for all. It doesn't need to be repeated. Again, there were many sacrifices under the old, just that one under the new. The old was temporary. The new is permanent. The old covered sins the new one takes the sins away and so the last section of the book from chapter 10 through to 13 well this begins with the fourth of our warnings and now it says really if they apostatize from the faith and um, once they'll return to judaism there remains no more sacrifice for sins if it's a rejection of the work of the trinity god would judge his people And we're reminded it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, this is uh, again another difficult passage when you just look at it. You need to understand the context of all of this. Again, all of this is addressing not salvation, but our rewards. And we'll conclude in a moment, you'll see. Chapter 11 goes on and gives us this incredible hall of faith. We're told what faith is. Faith is the substance of of the things hopeful the evidence of things not yet seen we're told that this world came about it's by faith we understand that the world was framed by the word of God so that things which are now seen were not made out of things which are visible so we can see the earth we can see the sun we can see the moon so that which we now have didn't come from any of those things this is an interesting argument that's made at that point alone but then it goes on to talk about these incredible individuals again the names are there all incredible people that God used. People who acted by faith, trusting him. An amazing chapter. And then the verses that Gerard shared with us this morning. I don't need to read them again. I just other than to say that we should be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's where we're going. That's the race we're running. And then the fifth and final warning is the danger of indifference. And really what we're told is, consider who it is that speaks to you, i.e. Jesus. You see, Israel suffered for not listening to Moses, and at that time we're told the earth shook. Well, in this portion of scripture we're told that there's going to be another shaking, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Everything that is not eternal is going to be shaken. And we're then told, let us have grace whereby we may serve God. Oh, these words are quite challenging. Acceptably. With reverence. And godly fear. That's a real challenge to every one of us, or it should be. You see, God is going to shake everything that, that is shakable. And this is of course in a global context there is a real practical element to this. There's a a way this will be played out and we get to the book of Revelation we'll see many of those things but also in our own lives. God is going to shake all the things that could be shaken in your life. God will put you through various trials and difficulties and allow those things in your life to shake the things that could be shaken so that all that is left is that which will remain. Now If you are holding on so tightly to something of this world well then that will remain but you'll suffer loss for it. You see, God's really asking the question what is it you're prepared to let go of? Are you prepared to let go of everything of this world? Everything of this life? Again, it just concludes this portion let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. Just think about that. God is asking us to serve him in a way that is acceptable to him. Not a way that is acceptable to us, notice. But a way that's acceptable to him. What does that mean for you and I that we have to give up now? What is it that God is shaking in our life? And with reverence, do we really reverence God? Do we fear him? Do we have that godly fear? Or have we already got to that place where we've lost the gift of repentance in certain areas of our life where we no longer repent because it's become so much part of us that we don't even feel it wrong anymore interestingly as we see with the other warnings actually specifically the first one we're told here that our God is a consuming fire now I think that's very interesting because I think this plays beautifully and dovetails into First Corinthians 3 where we're told there of our works being tried by fire to see of what sort they are. Whether gold, silver, precious stones. Those three will be purified by fire. They're the kind of things you want to be holding on to. Or wood, hay and straw. You know, those things are all going to get burned up, consumed by fire. And our works are the things that we've been investing in of that nature. You see, all these five warnings are a unit. They go together and complement each other. Each one builds upon the other as it goes through until it intensifies with that fifth capstone. You see, the writer relies heavily on Israel's exodus as an example or type of individual Christians. And there's so many references through this book to the children of Israel and the Exodus and so on. See, the Exodus generation, they were redeemed people, weren't they? But they failed to heed God's instructions. Now, the important thing, again, to emphasize is that they were saved from Egypt. We're not talking about salvation. We're not asking this morning, can you lose your salvation? The answer is no. If you've been born again, if you've been saved, it's by grace alone and you can't add anything to it, you can't take anything away from it. So, just as Israel was saved from Egypt, passed through the waters of the Red Sea, they were saved. But the issue, of course, here is that they were judged and they were disinherited for their disobedience. And the problem for us is that we can't yet see what is ahead in terms of what we're going to be disinherited from. But there are many things that the Bible alludes to that are coming in the light of eternity. There are certainly crowns that are mentioned. And... We may get to that, oh, well, it doesn't really matter, kind of. Well, then you've already got to that place, as we've seen earlier, of wandering, that drifting, the first one of these warnings. Let me summarise them. The first warning again, that drifting. The stragglers in Israel, as they're wandering in the wilderness and so on, it was the stragglers that got picked off. And really, what the author here says is, how can you escape? You know, If they didn't escape, you're not going to escape. So the challenge to you this morning is, how are you living your life? Are you, oh, it doesn't really matter. I can live like this. You know, at church, I'll give the kind of, I'm a Christian thing. But when I'm at work, they don't need to know. When I go out with my friends, it doesn't really matter. You know, I know I'm saved. Well, that's drifting. And the stragglers got picked off. And we're we're warned that we also won't escape if that's the way we choose to live. The second one, again, of disobedience, is that whole issue of not entering into his rest, continually striving. How many of us are continually striving? Because we are not trusting him in every area. The third one is really about maturing as a Christian, and the the failure to mature is terrible. You see, as a result of that failure to mature, and, and the whole process again is that giving up, whatever it is that God tells you to give up, not because you have to... Give it up because of that, but because you want to be what God wants you to be, you'll gladly. There were when I married Joy, there were things I gladly gave up because marriage was better. And you know that's what the relationship should be like with God. It's not giving out I don't really want to let it go. We should be so in love with God that it's never a problem. But if we don't allow those things in our life to be taken away that need to be taken away. Well, in that area we won't mature and we'll lose that gift of repentance. We will no longer feel remorse for those things. And we'll become numb to sin and as a result we'll forfeit rewards. The whole idea of this willful sin, God is not mocked, you will reap what you sow, to borrow a phrase from Galatians. You know, if you sin willfully, don't think you'll get away with it. Don't think that God will just ignore it. There is accountability. It's like the law of gravity, only this is a spiritual law, but it's just as real. And finally, indifference. And the danger here, and really the, the summation of all of these things, is that of our inheritance. Again, just think about the children of Israel. What they could have had if they'd have gone into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, they went in, they saw some of the fruit of the land, and they were blown away with it. But they lost that opportunity. You see, again, all of these warnings were written to believers. You see, they don't represent any chance of loss to the past aspect of salvation, i.e. justification. So it doesn't, it's not about that. Hence the eternal security of the believers. We've hammered this morning, hopefully that's clear. But the warnings admonish believers to press on and obtain all that God had promised to the faithful overcomer. You know, what was it that Paul particularly was frightened of losing? He was never frightened of losing his salvation. He was frightened, frightened of losing that which he'd worked for. He was concerned that he might not receive a full inheritance. And that comes out a number of times in his letters. Peter also says the same thing. John also speaks of striving so that we don't lose that which we've worked for. You know, there's a real issue here that we need to take seriously because it's going to affect us as we step out into eternity. See, the warnings represent very real, the very real possibility of the loss of privileges or rewards offered to the believer, which will be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. And that is the challenge for us. It's really a, a call to reevaluate how we are living our lives as Christians. What is the most important thing in our lives? What are we living for? Are we living for now or are we living for Christ and for eternity? Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, even though these portions of scripture are very hard, and Lord, they challenge us so much, we pray, Father, for your grace. Because Lord, even these things we can't fully understand without the illumination of your Holy Spirit. But Father, we do pray you impress them upon our hearts. Speak to each of us, Lord. And Lord, we're all in different places, Lord, probably in different ways you've spoken to each of us this morning. Well, Father, may we not just close our ears. Lord, I pray Lord, that we don't lose that precious gift of repentance. That, Father, we don't forget or or just feel the need not to repent. Lord, help us to understand how abhorrent sin is to a holy God in whichever way it appears in our life. Even if it's a small, trivial little thing that we perceive, to you, it was enough that your Son had to come and shed his blood. Father, please, by your grace... Continue the work that you have begun. Lord, I pray that all obstacles be removed and that, Lord, we do receive as individuals and as a body of believers here a full reward and that, Lord, we rejoice in the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, we just want to say thank you again and let our lives represent what you have done by our actions, by the works, by the fruit that is produced in us. Lord, we want to be partakers Help us to understand what that means and how it is to be lived out each moment of every day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.